Wandering Berry Center podcast, episode 12. I'm your host, Brian. And I'm Alex. Hope everybody's doing well. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, so before we jump into our prepared topics for the week, we have a bit of a health update from Alex. Uh, I think episode four. Um, ah, you so went long through... ago at this point. <laughs> yeah, you went through... Um, some some of your keto experimentation some yeah methods. yeah yeah and so i think uh, i think some of that's changed since then a little so bit why don't you walk us through some of that sure um so i've kind of come back out of keto i guess you could say for um a little while here it's been a couple weeks um and not that i've abandoned you know all of the good things from it. I've just added in basically more vegetables just as a, to get the carbs back up a little bit. Um, and honestly, the reason I did it or what, you know, kind of prompted me to do it, um, was I was having trouble sleeping, <laughs> which isn't that uncommon, I guess, for people, you know, trying this out. Um, so I wanted to see if that was the main cause and I'm not, really all that confident that it was. I think there's other reasons there that are, that are maybe causing some of that, but um, I wanted his, to see if, if that was part of it. We're historically uh, poor sleepers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty frustrating at times. Really Sensitive to little things that might like change, you know, your quality, quality of sleeping, sleeping environment and all that. Um, so anyway, so I wanted to see if that was it because sleep is pretty massively important. So if, you know, my diet was causing me to not sleep well, then it must not be the optimal diet for me because definitely I probably said it before, but it's worth saying again that, you know, not, there's no single diet for everybody. So while the keto diet is great and it's great for a lot of people, it's not necessarily the best for everybody. So, right. Um, yeah. So since I did that though, can't really report any negative effects on like, I definitely guess I can feel, um, slight energy changes, but it's not like I added in carbs by, bread. you know, bread and anything like that. It's literally just eating more vegetables and a few, you know, a little bit more fruit here and there. So How it's nothing you? dramatic. Yeah. Right. God damn it. <laughs> um, so yeah, nothing crazy by any means. Um, and it might sound like nitpicking, but, um, but I will say the, at least, you know, traditionally, maybe not traditionally, but a lot of people nowadays use the keto diet as a way to lose weight, right? Mm-hmm. Burn that extra fat. So within a couple days of like start putting, you know, some more carbs back into my diet, the amount of water weight that I stored almost instantly was pretty crazy like three pounds three four pounds probably out of what's your what's your i mean let's say i think i was you know at like i don't know 175 and or 174 like that range kind of and then um yeah just within a couple days jumped up to 177 78 that type of thing that's crazy big yeah yeah. Did you lose muscle definition, like abdominal muscles and whatnot, uh, just just from the skin? I would say so. Around my yeah. abs, yeah, you could see a little bit of a difference. But I was also, yeah. at the moment, I'm eating, 
to gain muscle and thus, you know, weight is just naturally going to happen. So there's a little bit of that going on too. Um, but yeah, so from like a, from a physical and mental standpoint, I don't really feel all that much different, I'll be honest. So, but I do plan to go back to this, um, Mm -hmm. not too long from now, but I think when I do it this time, I am going to get the, um, the blood metering tool and actually take some data because who doesn't love data? So, yeah. So that way we can, when we report next time on this, we can be a little more sure, you know, what's going on to at least some degree. I was thinking of a friend of mine, friend of ours came in to visit me and he had a, it's more than just a Fitbit. It was a whole watch and like this whole setup. But what I was really interested in was it was tracking his sleep cycles. And yeah. Yep. now personally, I was a little skeptical of the way it was doing this, but that's another day. Point is, is if I can get something that tracks my sleep. So I have an Apple watch that does that. Yeah. And it's pretty awesome, but and it does it tracks it amazingly well I'll be honest and it's really cool to watch what your heartbeat does throughout the night mm-hmm. you know going back to the data thing um, so super interesting and pretty useful but going back even further to what you said about having trouble sleeping um, I actually found out that that was definitely not every not the whole issue but an issue wearing the watch to bed <laughs> was not helping me sleep because I would think about it being on my wrist. I would actually wake up with wrist pain, which is kind of different. Um, oh, that immediately ruins the whole thing. Yeah. So for me, cause like I would, if I woke up, I'd be like, Oh, you know, did I bash the watch against something? So like, it's just one more thing. And that's just me, but that's just one more thing on your mind while you're trying to sleep. So it just didn't help. It was no. cool to see, but I, I learned that I, I probably shouldn't, at least not very frequently, maybe every once in a while just to check it out. But I'm glad you said that because this watch is like a hundred some odd dollars and I was oh, yeah. think, thinking of buying it purely <laughs> for that reason. Purely so. for that. Yeah. So I, I use it still for the, um, you know, for the gym and stuff. It's, it's awesome for that. And to just kind of give yourself a baseline of things to shoot for during the day. But yeah, for the sleeping... I'm not able to do it consistently. I'll just pay someone to watch me sleep. That's it. Because that's not going to be on your mind at all. <laughs> <laughs> Can't oh, wear the watch, man. but I'll have this stranger stare at me for eight hours while I sleep. Without digressing too much, I've always felt that that was a weird issue with uh, sleep studies you know you go to these places and they hook you up to all this crazy stuff and somebody's watching you sleep how can you possibly have a good night's sleep you can't i mean that's totally changing the environment completely and you know what that actually is a pretty fantastic segue into my topic for the day which i think you're going to enjoy let's do it all right but real quick before we get there i would after (laughs) After last week's topic of the potholes, yep, I was thinking something. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> we found that article by the lovely state of Michigan, you know, giving tips. Yep, it was fantastic. One of which the method was to speed up, right, and try to <laughs> hop over. 
<laughs> well, they were they were debating the merits on the website of both speeding well, okay. up and slowing down, and they well, ultimately recommended <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> well, yeah. Is... So I was driving home one day after that, and I thought to myself, if I were to take the advice of speeding up to avoid these potholes, I will be going a hundred miles an hour the entire way to work <laughs> because there's so many potholes that to do that, there's no speeding up and slowing down. You're just going fast because it's just a minefield so that they're basically promoting speeding. I mean, that to me sounds <laughs> like, you know, passive uh, allowance or whatever the legal term is for this. So next time you get pulled over, you just say you were following the DOT. Could you imagine that I get pulled over they roll, you know, I roll down the window and he starts talking to me or she and just show them my phone. Look, I was following the mandated advice by Michigan on what to do here. So you really, you have no grounds. Please let me go. Please. <laughs> I realized I was going fast and swerving all over the place, but strictly for tire uh, maintenance. All right. So. Sleep studies, segue. Sleep studies and changing your environment, which could potentially give you different results. My topic for today, the placebo effect. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely something we've all heard of before, or I would assume most people. And it's um, super fascinating. Really fascinating. So this was fun to think about and fun to read about, um, and I'm sure this is only going to barely scratch the surface of what could be said about it, but we'll give it a shot anyway. Um, so before we get going, this was called the most interesting phenomenon in all of science um, by Jeffrey Mogul, who is from McGill University. Uh, he does pain research, and he co-discovered the trend, so he's definitely not biased. Yeah, you call it the most interesting phenomenon in all of science, the placebo effect, um, which I thought was kind of funny. And, I mean, not that he's wrong, but he is definitely biased. <laughs> <laughs> I found it, and it is amazing. So, first of all, the placebo effect itself is coming from a, you know, a placebo. Uh, so, and what that is, is basically anything that's perceived to be real medicine or real treatment when it really isn't. Mm -hmm. um, so, I guess I kind of, when I'm thinking about it, and maybe you can offer something here, but um, I think about it two ways. So, like, the belief that they're, let's say you're going in for a treatment or whatever, you're, you think you're given something, but you're actually not. So, there's a belief there that there's an outcome, whether it's positive or negative. Um, but really there is no state of change or condition, you know, nothing's, nothing's changed, but you are believing it, um, yeah. or to no, like, a more extreme, well, a more extreme version of that would be, you are given the placebo. You do feel that there's a change, but there is actually some sort of measurable state change or, you know, change in your condition of a patient or as a right. patient. Right. Yeah. So I, I guess that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess, uh, but one thing, regardless of, of how extreme the outcome or, you know, um, how extreme the placebo effect is, in any given case, a person's expectation going into whatever the scenario in 
is um, plays like a large role in it. So it's um, it's almost the defining factor, right? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, because um, if you go basically, if I go into um, a study, let's say just random medical study, and I'm expecting to be given a stimulant. If I'm given a placebo instead, but I feel I've been given this stimulant, it's actually possible that, you know, I'm going to experience symptoms of, or, you know, that are synonymous with giving, with um, getting stimulants like an increased heart rate or focus or energy or anything like that. Um, But if I go in with the expectation that I'm going to be given, you know, a depressant, then, and given a placebo instead, then I might legitimately experience symptoms, you know, synonymous with a depressant. So mm-hmm. it totally depends on the person's mindset going in, which is, I mean, just the power of the mind, I guess it's, it's ridiculous. And, and hopefully I'm not, uh, jumping too far. No, 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 no. Please join in. I mean, it's the thing, the thing that's so crazy about all this is it's real. Like, yeah, as you, it, as you said, if I'm given a sugar pill, in this study and i think that this sugar pill is gonna make me jump not jump higher that's a bad example is gonna keep me awake mm-hmm. you're right that the body actually you you will see measurable increases in i in in points of data that correlate to increased awakeness yeah it's this really weird so your body mixture of like neurological and biological, you know, functionality coming together. Yeah. And it's really strange. Your um, body is almost listening. It is, it appears to be your body's listening to your expect to your mental expectations and working to meet them in a way. Yeah, pretty much. And we can dig into in a little bit here of kind of some possible explanations. And again, it'll probably be only, scratching the surface of what, you know, cause this is, as our friend said, the most fascinating phenomenon in science. So it's not like this isn't currently being studied. It's not yeah. something that we totally understand by any means. Um, but yeah. So first, um, I guess more on what a placebo itself is, but you know, a substance or treatment that has no active ingredients or effect, um, primarily used by medical researchers. Um, so, you know, if, if everybody going into a study knew what they were going to be taking, um, that's their expectation, right? And that's going to affect um, the outcome of the study due to the placebo effect itself. Right. So if, if you have 40 people coming in for a study and they all know that they're going to be given a stimulant, let's say they are given the stimulant, but that placebo effect is still going to be at play and it's going to enhance or could possibly can't say definitely but there's the the placebo effect would have an you know a measurable change yeah it's it's corrupting the data yeah you could come out of that study and say this medicine has way more effect than um we anticipated or whatever yeah yeah um so sugar pills i think are the most you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think those are you know the most probably commonly known form of a placebo yeah i think you when you have a double blind study Mm-hmm. Which which is the type of study that's meant to eliminate the placebo effect, mm-hmm. um, or at least make the uh, 
make it unaware, you know, try to, try to filter right. it out. Uh, yeah, but I mean, sugar, you, you could have, are, yeah, you could have all pills sorts are of used. it though. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, let's say we were de- testing a type of injection. You could inject somebody with just sugar water, sugar water or water, I guess. And yeah. And that's in the medical world. I'd be curious. Well, I guess, I guess we're talking about the body, so it's going to be primarily mm-hmm. medical studies, but I'd be curious too. like, um, I'm struggling to come up with something right at the moment, but like some sort of non medicine study, but still has to do it like a fitness test or something well, like that. I wonder if you could, what about the next time you're getting drunk with your friends, Ooh. get two bottles, replace one of them with colored water and give that to, you probably have to alter the taste of it. Maybe he's going like, he's, he's to give it back to me and say, why the <laughs> fuck did you hand me water? All right, let's you do shots of something sweet. And you Ooh, can sweeten you the one and you put the alcohol in the other one. Just say they're like, you know, these super delicious vodka shots, jello shots, maybe. There you Something go. like that. Whatever. And see if everybody acts drunk, even though if you, you know that only half the people actually received alcohol. I'm willing, to, bet. I'm willing to hypothesize now that uh, they do act drunk. Oh, to- I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't. You know, you have you have social pressures going on there. You have the desire to be drunk, let alone the expectation of it happening. Yep. So, yeah, that's that's next level. But anyway, you could totally mess with your friends. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the placebo effect itself, um, Maybe not you specifically, but I think most people, when they hear that, it, like, has a negative connotation to it. Would you agree? Um, yeah. Yeah, it it almost comes off as, like, um, cheating. Like, not cheating, but it's, like... Almost like failure of something. It's like an interference or something. Yeah, it's not... Yeah, you say like, oh, well, that was just the placebo effect. You're like, oh, yeah, you okay, well, then that's that's not desirable. That's not what we yeah, wanted. You don't, that's what I was going to say. You don't want this placebo effect. Most people don't want the placebo effect to right. happen. Yeah, so in these, you know, in a lot of medical studies, it's maybe not as common today as we're understanding these things more, but certainly in the past, it's common practice to say a drug doesn't work if both groups, the control group and the group actually receiving whatever it is they're testing react in the same way positive or not so let's say we're testing a pain medicine and the control group that received the placebo also experienced um pain relief and so did the group that received it they would write the drug off as non-effective because the placebo effect was seen as you know a negative a negative thing so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, but I mean, I would agree with that in the sense that the drug itself is not what worked. But I think where you're headed with this is what did work was the belief in getting reduced pain, i.e. the placebo effect had a real tangible yeah. impact. Yeah. and So why not use the placebo exactly, effect? Exactly. I mean, in my opinion, it shouldn't be a bad like you're saying it shouldn't be a bad thing i mean um if i can solve whatever issue i might be having or somebody's having by not introducing some foreign substance and just using brain power essentially to do it why not um 
not I, not I, saying that I'm against proper care and medication. There's, you know, I would I would say the counterpoint potentially at least mm-hmm. uh, is that part of the part of the the normal activation, if you will, of the placebo effect effect yep. involves tricking yourself at some level. Yes. So that that might be hard to do consistently. Right. And like we can if yeah. We can actually dig into that a little bit. Um I've got some examples there. But no. yeah, you're no, you're right, you're right. Um and it, along those lines, um and you actually kind of alluded to it before, there is somewhat of a limit here, right? I can't <laughs> I can't use the placebo effect to lose weight. I can't think my way to being <laughs> skinny. <laughs> do it. <laughs> I mean, I guess you can in a sense. You're making decisions to do certain things, but that's not the placebo effect. Um, so there's kind of limitations to only things that the brain has direct control over, like you know, energy or focus or pain relief and things like that. I can't heal a broken leg by thinking somebody's going to heal it and they actually don't. Um, yeah, so it's definitely limited to more um, directly connected to the brain-related things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's almost to the point, or it's almost worth pointing out that uh, I am pointing it out. So it <laughs> um, I'll tell you if it's worth it. Go ahead. <laughs> You know, it if if you were capable, if our bodies were capable of willing away weight, you, you would imagine at least we would already have functions to do that, right? Like the body, I don't know how that would work because it seems preposterous, but if your body was able to do that already, you wouldn't think it would necessarily be hidden behind the placebo effect. So I'm just I'm just saying that. Mm those sort of like really macro things like willing away weights and all that. Yeah. It totally makes sense. The placebo effect couldn't, couldn't do something like that because. Well, I'm trying to think of a situation that the, where the placebo effect would come into play naturally. Like let's say outside of a doctor's office, like, you know, where well, would that gonna, happen? I was going to say weight loss is like a, like a physics thing, right? Like you, your brain doesn't have control over no 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 right but your brain does control have have control excuse me over your heart rate to a certain extent right um yeah definitely i mean you can it can release signals and whatnot to you can yeah you can stress yourself out into having a higher heart rate just by thinking about things that you know make you stressed anxious and stressed out (laughs) yeah so definitely And and i suppose on a certain level your brain, if you were able to wire this up, I suppose, could, maybe this is some form of autoimmune type thing. Your brain, theoretically, I guess, could just tell your body to start burning fat, and that would just make you hot, basically. You would just generate energy. But anyway, I'm going down a tangent. Uh, well, I mean, that's interesting to think about. Um, well, because you were saying you'd think that if that were possible to be able to do that, that there wouldn't be, it wouldn't be hidden. There would be yeah, some naturally that's, accessible. That's kind of what I was, was kind of getting at with, yeah. with the placebo effect. Cause if it is useful, 
why is it hidden? So is there a situation in a natural environment where the placebo effect is actually taking place to a human's advantage, whether they realize it or not, probably not, yeah. but um, I'm not sure. Cause every, s- every time you think about it, it's like a, it's in a study situation like this, right? Maybe the real world application is our bodies. So like, I'm going to take like herbal medicine and like mm-hmm. ancient, ancient medicine techniques, right? Mm-hmm. whether or not a, a given technique worked or not we won't necessarily debate but let's pretend we have some herbal technique that involves like a making a paste out of leaves or something and mm-hmm. it's supposed to it's supposed to help you if your body works in conjunction with your brain to say that you know we're, we're doing all this ritual to get this paste and that's going to make me better in this way mm-hmm. that would be advantageous for your for your body to play along with that. But then as right. I was saying that, as I was saying that I was like, well, why wouldn't your body just heal up your, whatever the issue is already. Hmm. So now, um, I, now yeah. I don't have, now, now I don't have a good, <laughs> good situation. Well, Cause yeah, hmm. it, why wouldn't, why would it take, why does it need the, you know, why is the physical manifestation important? Why does your brain have to right. see something and, and think something's going to happen in order to get the placebo effect mm-hmm. to trigger why doesn't it just happen? Why doesn't it just happen? What about um, playing on the the expectations thing? Let's say that it maybe it doesn't need to be in regards. I don't know if this is extending beyond the bounds of what the placebo effect is, but let's say that we're in a tribe, you know, and half the tribe's doing something, and it's going well for them. So they're setting expectations that the other half of the tribe is observing. And before they, or at least, let's say they're not observing it, they're being told about it. So what first half of the tribe is doing this one thing, they're telling the other half of the tribe about it. So they're building up their expectations about this thing. That's so great. And then when they finally do go and try it, they're more likely to have a positive experience or whatever the experience is expected to be. Um, because of the effect, which could potentially have benefits to them. I'm not sure what they would be. No, Um, that's actually, as you were saying that, I was thinking similar thoughts in the sense that maybe it's like an enhancement effect. So that mm -hmm. paste, that paste is good. Let's say it cures burns, let's say, that leaf paste. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't do as good a job as you think it it's doing but it's nature's way of saying you you're onto something maybe mm, yeah it's like hey that's a great idea and we're gonna let you know by you know turning it up a notch and really healing up those burns but <laughs> maybe keep exploring you know <laughs> it's nature's breadcrumbs like a little... i don't know yeah yeah that's that's kind of yeah yeah that sounds preposterous but a little, a, a little treat that's funny. okay yeah yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a really good question. What is the, I'm sure we're, I'm sure it's right in front of our faces. I don't know. Like why, what's the natural reason for this to, to happen? I don't know. It's, Someone it chime has, in. Tell it has us. to be some sort of, <laughs> it has to be some sort of stopgap. Like it's a way to just push over the edge in a sense mm-hmm. and, and, 
you know, whatever the situation is, just get yourself to the other side. I don't know. Because then I, what I keep coming back to in all of this is if the body's capable of these things, why does, why do we need, why does it hidden behind the placebo effect? I guess is. Right. No, no. I. So if your body's capable of healing those burns mm-hmm. with it, and because the paste is, is only basically a mint paste and all it does is make you feel a little cooler, but the actual healing is your body, you know, why, why even yeah. go as far as making the paste? Like why do you, well, let's go through some of these, uh, these explanations that I found okay. possible explanations. None of these are necessarily an end all be all. I don't think, but maybe they'll spark some other, other thoughts. Um, so let's just think about a person going in and their experience of placebo effect in some study. Um, what, you know, let's say, all right, our person here in this example, they went in for treated for pain. They were actually given a placebo. Um, one possible explanation is simply from a, a statistical standpoint, regression towards the mean. So (laughs) the person just heals naturally over time, regardless of the treatment. So the placebo um, they were given, you know, they're just, they leave the doctor's office, they have these pills and they're just healing over time, but they think that the pills are doing something because of just that natural healing, healing process. So, you know, time is almost a placebo in that sense, I guess, sort of. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's pretty believable. Yeah. So that's just a pretty pragmatic one there. Yeah. I would say that's certainly a cause for some situations or a reason for some situations. Yeah. Um, another one is similar confirmation bias. Um, so let's say I'm given a treatment that's supposed to make me feel better. I'm going to start to focus on any and look any sign that my condition's improving and totally start to ignore the negative ones. Right. I have an expectation now that I should be getting better. So any sign of relief or, um, improvement that I see, I'm going to focus on that. Makes sense. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Am I explaining yeah, that definitely. correctly, you think? Yeah, I was thinking of a ridiculous example of like, my head hurts, I get this drug, my head's feeling better, but I'm ignoring the fact that like my foot's falling off or something. <laughs> <laughs> my nose is bleeding a lot, but my headache's gone. Right. <laughs> There you go. That's a little bit more realistic. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, hu- humans and and our mind are right are are strange and powerful. So yeah, so I could totally see someone just lasering in on the fact that pretty much, yeah. You know the pain. And all in my of these big toes gone. All of these are, I mean, play with each other, right? I don't think any of these are mutually exclusive either. No, no, the time one would play into this big time. Yeah. Um, so this next one, we talked about it a little already, but just expectations again. Um, so you actually kind of start to like, this one's a little hard to explain, but you start to learn what to expect in a sense. So the example I found, um, this study they did it, they just, a study in 2004 that some, some people did. Um, basically they had some post-op patients. I don't, I'm not sure how many. Um, but, they found that 
they basically divided these post-op patients into two. One group received their painkillers administered by a nurse, by an injection, I guess it was, and they were able to, you know, it was at a scheduled time. They were able to see the nurse doing the, you know, the procedure, giving them the injection, whatever. So they kind of came to know what to expect and, um, okay, here I am. I'm going in for my pain relief, blah, blah, blah. The other one, the other group, was given it at um, an undisclosed time. I guess it was kind of, uh, I forget exactly how they released it, but whatever. So this person, um, the, or the other group rather, was given the same amount of painkillers initially, um, and at an undisclosed time, and it turns out that they ended up needing twice as much to get the same level of relief as the group that was experiencing it and getting it from the nurse directly. So mm. these are post-op patients from the same procedure or whatever. And granted, everybody's level of pain is going to be different. I'm not sure. Again, I could have looked into it more to see how they're measuring these things. Right. But Basically, yeah, the, the group that received it unknowingly required twice as much as the group that received it um, directly. This will seem obvious, but it's almost like its purpose is self-preservation. So it's like the placebo effect is your body's way of adapting to a situation. There's mm. going to be more to it than this, but so in the case of the scheduled thing, your body, it sounds like at least, is becoming accustomed to these injections, which are yeah. helping. Yeah. So it's almost like your body's like, okay, like we've got this schedule that appears to be improving the overall health of the body. I'm going to do whatever. I don't know what, but I'm going to do whatever I can. This is, I'm anthropomorphizing the, the body here. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can to work with the situation Right. And like, and move things along hopefully is, even quicker. This is something we're doing now. So Right, right. Whereas <laughs> whereas the, the non scheduled people I you know, the, the only input it's gonna have is the fact that all of a sudden the drugs are in the system. So then whatever the body does to react and, and do its mm-hmm. thing can start. But I, I guess I could see how since we do have a cl- an internal clock I could see how the timing of this, your body might be aware of that and and sort of ramp up certain, I don't know. Yeah, I start, mean. It, start firing certain neurons. And, yeah, and but pretty much. I mean, it starts to activate the same relief mechanisms in the brain basically ahead of time, right? That you would uh, get yeah, strictly by. I mean, I don't see why not. If it truly is all, you know, going back to what you talked about last week, neurons and pathways and it is signals. And why, <laughs> why can't you, um, or why can't your brain rather play with those things? I wonder if there is something really reaching here, but if your body has advanced awareness of a certain thing entering its system, I wonder if, if having a buildup time somehow increases your ability to work with what's coming in, Versus turning those systems on, mm-hmm. you know, the moment they show Blindly. up. So like, yeah. Yeah. So like if a drug gets injected into your system and your body's not ready for it, do you, do you basically lose out on some of that initial 
benefit because your body's still turning on all the machines, if you will. To... Mm. It needs part of the substance to even get the gears turning, whereas Maybe. the placebo effect is allowing those doors to be open when the medicine arrives. Right. Hmm. Just a theory. Yeah, of course. That's what this is about. Um, this next one's pretty similar, I would say, but a explanation for maybe some of these trial situations in gen- or you know specifically, um, but like the rituals associated with these studies. Going to the doctor, you know you're being studied. You you have like this mental prep for the situation. It's not like you're going into this and you're just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm just going to this place. No, you know you're going in for some study, and so you're kind of just, again, playing with the expectation aspect of it. But, um, you know, the rituals that go along with, with something like this are kind of getting you into that state of mind, yep. which yep. are going to play to it. Um, this last one, though, that is quite interesting, um, more recent uh, studies have shown that there might actually be for somebody experiencing the placebo effect may actually release opioids in the brain. Like it may actually be able to do that, which is just ridiculous. And the way they found it was, um, and you could probably argue the legitimacy of this, I suppose. Um, but giving opioid counteracting drugs to, um, the patients that were given the placebo and it was shown to counteract the placebo effect. So that reverse engineering, that would say that the placebo effect is releasing opioids, right? And I would totally believe that because that's your brain doing that. Your brain has the ability to release dopamine, serotonin. So yeah, I totally, yeah, makes perfect sense. It's just crazy how, you know, in the past this was seen as just kind of like, Fooey nonsense. Like, why a are fake, you... A fake thing. Just a fake thing, but it's so real. Um, I had a textbook. I don't know if I still have it. I will try to find it for the next episode. Uh, in that textbook, when I was looking at it in college, they claimed to have found one, uh, maybe the neural pathway in the spine that is specifically dedicated to the placebo effect. Whoa. Yeah, no way, I'll try, really? I'll, I'll try to find it. Yeah, yeah, I'll you got to bring that next time. Yep. Yeah, so there, is, I, I can I can remember the the figure, the the textbook picture so clearly. It's hmm. uh, it's a picture of a spine. Please draw and, it for us. Yeah, it's a picture of a spine with <laughs> uh, all your different spinal cords, and I don't know if that's the technical term for them. <laughs> don't you only have all one the, spinal cord? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, it's some multi-necked beast. <laughs> you have different bundles of nerves and whatnot sure. running up that cord, right? They claim to have found this textbook claim to have found the the pathway. So, yeah, I would yeah, like I'll to know to, how they how they did that. I'll try to find that. Um okay, so I just quickly here to to finish up, I wanted to provide an example from my own life and I invite you to do the same if you can think of one. Uh, okay. If not, that's okay. But I'm wondering, going back to a previous episode, how would the float tank experience been different for me if I knew zero about it and just found, let's just 
this might be impossible, but let's say I was just put in that room, knew nothing, and just hopped in and started going. You know, maybe I was given the instruction ahead of time on what to do, but it, I knew nothing about what the perceived outcome was going to be or, you know, what I should feel, things like that. Um, interesting what would it question. Have been like? Yeah. I would, I would at least pose that, uh, since that's such a specific physical input set mm -hmm. of physical yeah, inputs. Yeah, this might is a very physical example. That's true. Yeah, so I'm thinking that this one probably I'm just guessing probably mm -hmm. not as much deviation as maybe something else because you've got the water, you've yeah. got the, the lack of light, you've got the earplugs. Okay, that's, which, that's true. Which are all very very aggressive physical inputs, I guess. Definitely, definitely, or lack thereof. <laughs> or lack, yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> Um, uh, but no, no you're, you're right. That's I mean, a good point. You would have, uh, at the very least, you would have at least. Yeah. Well, this was kind of a two-parter in my mind. Okay. Um, because I think the reason I initially thought of it was playing on the expectations part of it again. What if my first experience, because I knew nothing and I just went into this, what if my first experience was really poor? And that's what I learned to kind of associate with this experience and what I came to expect. Would I ever, would I, what would it take to then be able to switch over to having a positive experience? Or would it be that by having that first negative experience, I'm now, I don't even know if this is, if this is moving beyond placebo effect, but am I now forever associating that with a negative experience and won't really be able to have a positive one after that or or what i would i would guess that um if you're the type of of mind to not challenge your intuitions mm -hmm. then yeah i would you're probably more at risk of staying in that funk yeah right but you yourself i know for sure you would you're skeptical so you might you might be able to self help and get yourself out of that. But yeah. then the other the other major thing that would get you out of that would be somebody else's experience, you know, right? Uh, coloring your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you you step out of that thing and you look at somebody and they're just like, "That was the best thing ever." Yeah. Then you'd be and, like, oh, "Okay, well, I must be doing something wrong." Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that um, might be moving beyond the bounds of it a little bit, but it no, was but I, interesting yeah. to think about. I think. I think if you scale that back to like, I don't know, that I feel like people have those little uh, things, those sorts of things all the time. Oh, I don't do that because it it's it always made me feel bad, and then they never question whatever it was ever again. I, <laughs> oh, I don't yeah, drink I don't sure. drink coffee because the first cup of coffee that I ever had made me way too jittery. Well, can't, I can't claim that. Yeah, well, <laughs> but part of the deal, right, is uh, coffee. If you drink, you know, maybe their first experience, maybe they had like a double espresso and they were just true, like, what true. the fuck? <laughs> Good topic. Thank you. I, lo I love yeah. that one. Yeah. Again, yeah. I really think that's just scratching the surface, but. Definitely. Um, yeah, I'm going to try to find that other thing. I would like to bring it back. Yeah, let's yeah. let's hear about that. So my transition. um, I would say that as a, uh, a human race, we are using the placebo effect to trick ourselves into thinking 
that what I'm about to talk about is okay. Hmm. What are you um, about to talk about? <laughs> so I wasn't initially, although this topic is definitely environmental and can be depressing if you go to that place, I wasn't trying to spin it that way, but you're, uh, I was trying to think of how to transition. Uh, so I was just going to talk, I mean, the, the heading that I wrote down is stuff in the ocean. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, trying to make me mad. That's how you make me mad. No, it's there's there's <laughs> there's fun bits in there. It's really more what I was really after was uh, just really humanity's mental state about this, really, and thinking that this is okay. That's so I was reading a rereading a book that talks about some of the l- lesser thought of after effects of war, and hmm. it's split up into three chapters. One chapter is about. Uh, the bone fields of Russia where entire armies, German armies were like, you can go there and it's all the bones for like 200,000 people. The other chapter is that about France and how like there's just giant parts of France that are completely uninhabitable because the amount of unexploded artillery shells in the dirt and in the trees is just absurd in the trees. Yeah, they're in tree like trees have grown around. Oh, okay. I'm yeah. thinking like nesting up in trees. <laughs> um, people are still. I mean, people are still digging artillery shells out of their gardens every now and then. Oh uh, there's God. a whole. There's a whole French government department. Uh, they collect these unexploded ordinances. They bring them to this peninsula. This is yeah. not what I was gonna. They bring them to this peninsula. The low tide goes. Or I'm sorry, tide goes out. They build this huge pyramid, basically <laughs> of bombs. Tide comes in and they blow it up. It's amazing. And actually, that would have probably been a good one to put into this list. Yeah, so they're just, but that's actually, in my opinion, a pretty good use of. The At least they're trying to solve. Yeah, they're an doing issue. something. Yeah, they're doing <laughs> something. So the third topic of this book is nuclear waste and what we did with it. And we didn't do good things with it. I'll tell you that right off. I'm assuming it's now stuff in the ocean. It's part of the stuff in the ocean, yeah. <laughs> so we'll start on the serious one, and then we'll go to uh, we'll go to the the more fun ones. Um, so in the English Channel, there's a place called Herds Deep, H U R D S uh, apostrophe S Deep, Herds Deep. It's a really deep channel in in the English Channel. Um, and so between 1950 and 1963, uh, containers of low level radioactive waste were dumped into the English channel, uh, and tried to dump it into this herds channel, this, this deeper spot. Mm -hmm. Uh, however, it turned out that part of what they did was basically the ships, they had this little clock that when they left shore this clock started ticking and that clock was supposed to be timed up with boat speed in the sense that once because they didn't have the best mapping stuff right you know they didn't have uh they didn't fire up google maps and right right and like they didn't (laughs) have deep please yeah this is 1950 i mean they had plenty (laughs) of plenty of sophisticated instruments but anyway so they would drive a certain amount of time they would boat a certain amount of time away from shore and use that sometimes as their, yup, we're in the right spot, rather than actually checking, you know, maps, nautical maps. And stuff. So the point is, is that they didn't always drop this stuff in the channel. 
Sure. I'm sorry, in, in the Hertz Deep. It was always in the English Channel. Um, and so for a long time, people assumed that it was, it was not necessarily a giant secret that these barrels were dropped. And uh, we did it too. I'll get to that. But they assumed um, that they were in the right location. or where Well, they assumed they, they were in the right location, but more scary, more shocking, more placebo-y <laughs> is that um, we assumed that people assumed that the waste had been dissipating, had been leaking hmm. for the for the past seventy years, and yeah. that was a good thing. They were they were hoping that it would, really? in a sense, just dissipate. So then, uh, let me see. So yeah, the existence of the barrels isn't a secret, but experts have assumed that the containers rusted open years ago. However, a uh, a group of German environmentalists not too long ago uh, were able to see un unrusted barrels, you know, totally sealed barrels, yeah. as little as one hundred meters deep, so three hundred feet deep. Which, okay. when when you're talking about radioactive waste, ain't a lot. Holy crap! So the the problem is is that these barrels are still very much containing their radioactive waste. They did not bust open at least it's it appears that most of them did not so all okay. of a sudden now we've we've got this radioactive waste that's just sitting at the bottom of the english channel and there's yeah. various there's various people that have called for you know its removal and all that but what's you know since the barrels didn't bust open you mm -hmm. know until it was discovered that they hadn't people were were taking i assume at least i'm i'm reaching outside of my research here but you know, people are taking readings of the ocean and saying, oh, look, it's fine. We're good. <laughs> we, we threw all those barrels down there and it's fine. We're fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> and obviously in the one sense, you know, it, it appears most of them did not bust open. So, yeah, OK, that's good in, in one way. But then in the other sense, they didn't bust open. So it's all still there. And right. Co and could. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, what made it... <laughs> What made it okay then for them to bust open, but not now? Or is yeah. it just because they thought they did bust open and the readings that they were taking were still okay, so everything yeah. must be fine? Now, some of them definitely did open. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a uh, that's a bit muddy, you know, as far as so what is. The, the ocean's just got trace amounts of radioactivity material 100%. in it. 100%, yeah. Just... So... The Wall that's, Street that's Journal cool. switching up. So that was the British and the Belgians and a few others. Uh, so Belgians. around the same time period, uh, we were doing something similar off the coast of San Francisco. The Wall Street Journal reportedly, or I'm sorry, recently claimed that plutonium levels are 1,000 times above normal on the seafloor 50 miles out from San Francisco, where... 50,000 containers of radioactive waste lay at the bottom of the seafloor. Whoa. That we put there. <laughs> and then, not shockingly at all, they also claim this is globally significant. No shit. <laughs> um, so moving on, the United States, uh, reading from a, a fact here, United States alone dumped vast quantity, and it should be said, uh, we, by far and away, uh, have the most nukes of anyone mm -hmm. and therefore makes makes a lot of sense that we have the most waste too 
the United States alone dumped vast quantities of nuclear material off its coasts between 1946 and 1970. Rough estimate is 110,000 total containers. Um, containers being barrels? Or? Barrel, usually steel barrels that have okay. been sealed. Yep. Yeah. Uh, maybe not steel. That might not be accurate. But anyway. Um, well, they were hoping they'd rust open, right? Well, I guess. I mean, I don't. I couldn't find a great... The English Channel story, people assumed, appeared to have assumed that after a certain time, they mm. would have rusted open. Mm. Now, was that something that they were hoping at the time of disposal, or was that something that we told ourselves to make ourselves feel better after the fact? I don't know. Um, so... That doesn't uh, slight tangent here, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because steel fully submerged underwater is that going to rust? There's no oxygen going to it. Uh, well, I guess they didn't. They didn't rust. Yeah, <laughs> the ones that o- the ones that opened probably opened from like smacking into stuff. You didn't know, they you shoot drop- them? <laughs> I yeah, I was wondering if you remembered that. Um, <laughs> So in a totally non-podcast conversation, uh, one of the things that we did was we dug pits in Nevada and filled the pits with water and then sunk the barrels in the pits. (laughs) Out of sight, out of mind, bitches. And then every now and then a barrel would float up. So you know know what we did? We we shot those barrels with M16s to sink them again. Yeah. Please go away. I don't want to look at you. Your problem amazing. if I see you. So truly amazing. So yeah, that that came from the book. That's a uh, that came from the book. That little story. But um, let's see, the USS Calhoun County dumped thousands of tons of radioactive waste in the Atlantic Ocean, often without heeding the simplest health precautions in order to make sure. What kind oh, of yeah, health precautions yeah. are there when, when dumping radioactive waste? I'd like to see that document. Uh, yeah, please, please. In order to make sure the waste containers drums sank, sailors would sometimes shoot them with rifles. <laughs> what the fuck, though? That doesn't make any sense. Don't no, put it in it, a... It, why it even bother containing it if you're going to break the container? You know, that almost speaks to maybe they did expect these to rust open. Maybe it was... You know, they were like, okay, we're dumping 110,000 barrels that we think are going to rust open at this interval over this amount of time. What is it if we shoot a couple ahead of time? (laughs) Holy fuck. Oh, yes, it's so great. Uh, And then Russia also, uh, the number I found for them was roughly 17,000 containers. Who knows? But they were playing, too. (laughs) They They were having a good time, too. Sure. Can't do it without uh, Russia. Nope. And then any other country, you know, India, Pakistan, you know, I don't know what they did with their radioactive waste, but, you know, you can either... South Africa when they had nuclear weapons you know, you at can one either, point. You can either throw it in the ocean or you can dig a pit. It's basically or strap it, because, it to a rocket and shoot it into space. Well, you know, what the that's a common thing, but here's the really big issue with that. What happens... If the rocket explodes at any point oh on its ascent, <laughs> the rocket is leaving the atmosphere. It's not out of the atmosphere. It's right? leaving the atmosphere oh and it explodes. God. What a disaster. What do, you, <laughs> what do you do then? Just throw in the towel. 
Yeah. It's, it's over. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the issue with strapping it to rockets because it does seem like a great idea, right? It seems perfect. Oh my God. It's, it's the ultimate. Oh, space is the ultimate ocean. You can just fire those rockets in any direction, and they are completely. Hey, out remember of sight. that trash problem we had? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you can't have. Like what was it? The we had a couple space as SpaceX rockets blow up, you know, on ascent. So it'll happen. It can happen. Oh sure. Okay, so that was that's the really depressing one. Uh, yeah, it's I don't know what else to say other than that. Please cheer me up. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll do the the real fun one up. Uh, some listeners probably have heard of this. This is not a, a totally new thing, uh, but it's a story about the ducks, AKA the friendly floaties. So a consignment of friendly floaty toys. That's where this whole thing gets its name. It was a company, uh, which were manufactured in China, departed from Hong Kong on a on a container ship. Uh, and then on 10 January, 1992, a storm in the North Pacific ocean, uh, caused 40-foot um, waves to, to hit the ship. Uh, one of the containers that fell overboard held 28,800 child's bath toys, which came <laughs> in a number of forms. Red beavers, green frogs, blue turtles, and yellow ducks. Oh, my gosh. At some point, the, the container opened, either by striking the ground or, you know, somehow it opened up. Yeah. And all of these were released. Oh my God! And so, each uh, yeah. So you had all these these things released into the ocean at one time. And a fun little fact is they all did have uh, like a little cardboard packaging, but oh. apparently the the cardboard it was found way later, or it was assumed the cardboard like deteriorated super quickly. Yeah. Oh, and then okay. another another unique aspect about this is these these bath toys essentially didn't have any holes in them. So like bath toys normally you could like squeeze the water out of them or whatever. Yeah. Right. These were totally airtight. Oh, awesome. So they float. So best case scenario for a container of yeah. floaty toys to be expelled into the ocean. This right. Is so were they so, sinking until the cardboard deteriorated, you know, and then they came up? No, I imagine they floated. They floated the whole time? The whole time, yeah. Okay. That would be my guess. Um, so, yeah, the mass release of these things ended up providing a really interesting set of data for studies of the ocean's currents and a few other oh, things. Oh, cool. Yeah, so the standard, method, the standard method of studying those kinds of things is to release drift bottles. And I guess they mm -hmm. normally release them in batches of 500 or 1,000 or you know, okay. somewhere in between. And sure. the, normal, the normal recovery rate is 2% of that. Oh, thousand. shit. Really? Yeah. So Recovery just like within their expected location yeah. i mean obviously these things are going to come up somewhere eventually i would assume yep so now all of a sudden you've got 28 29,000 let's say uh objects released all at once instead of a thousand so that two percent <laughs> you know the, the the actual number increases Return. yeah yeah so that was pretty cool and they and knew so they, they, i mean they knew where this was starting from they knew where it was starting from yep. and were able to successfully predict a whole number of landing sites so they were able to say that like um you know they they thought for sure they would start washing up on alaskan shores sure mm -hmm. enough 10 months later they did <laughs> um 
They predicted landfalls in Washington state and theorized that many remaining floaties would have traveled to Alaska, westward to Japan, back to Alaska, and then drifted northwards towards the Bering Strait and become trapped in the Arctic ice pack. So theoretically, assuming we don't melt all the ice pack, there are rubber duckies trapped in ice up in... Yes. <laughs> you know, I imagine, or I realize that this probably took place in the middle of the ocean, right? Um, roughly. But I like to think that some guy after the storm is out there in some small vessel and just, he's cruising along slowly, sees one rubber ducky, maybe a red beaver, <laughs> pop up, then another, then another, and then just increasingly more and more just start popping up everywhere. <laughs> it's like, what? Well, anybody sailing through the North Pacific gyre? Gyre? G-Y-R-E? How do you say that? Uh, gyre, spell it, I think. spell it again? Gyre. I think it's gyre. G-I-R-E? G-Y. G-Y. It's a term G-R-E. for a large mass of water that has a current that rotates. Very uh, so anybody probably. anybody sailing through the north pacific gyre i'm gonna call it uh it's i don't know if anybody's found them i didn't find that but it's hypothesized that roughly 2,000 of these little guys are trapped in that gyre and just (laughs) Just circling they're just circling the ultimate bathtub yeah um so yeah they were able to predict where these things might end up as much as you know six or ten years out and pretty successfully yeah, and then yeah. obviously they also learn some things by sure. the showing up in unexpected places. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. actually funny and has a silver lining. I like that. Yeah. So in the case of the North Pacific, oh, we must know where the ducks are actually, um, because the the quote from Ebsmeyer, the guy that's sort of the the lead on this particular study, um, said that we always knew this gyre existed, but until the duck ducks came along we didn't know how long it took to complete a circuit and it was like knowing it was like knowing that the planet has a solar system but not being able to say how long it takes to orbit so they were able to track some of these ducks traveled almost the entire length of the earth oh my gosh yeah that's awesome so that's a company still around i would like to oh i don't know i should look that up (laughs) yeah friend friendly floaty toys friendly floaty toys 1992 is when this happened, January That's 10th. That's great. Um, <laughs> and one of the other notes, uh, bleached by the sun and seawater, the ducks and the beavers faded, oh. but the, tur- the turtles and the frogs uh, kept their original colors. Interesting. Different yeah. dyeing techniques. I guess so. Used, yeah. Or just more um, resistant color. That's That's interesting. Cool. They they were getting roughly a 1.4% recovery rate off the Alaska shores. Um, Do you think yeah. if if I went and found these toys, I could sell them at a premium? Well, you might be able to collect a hundred dollar reward actually. Ah. Yeah. There. Uh, if you find, I don't know if it's blanket, but they have issued rewards for findings, uh, finding them in certain locations that they predicted. You think there's 2,000 of them out there floating around? I mean, these guys seem to be pretty on the money, so I'm I mean, going to say there's That's a, there's 200 a... grand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I but we, we, I don't, 
we quit this podcast and we go out there and we hunt. That's right. <laughs> We're going to be on the lookout for for what is that? Uh, white and white beavers and white ducks, but green frog, frogs <laughs> and blue right. turtles. Right. Don't be looking for the red beavers. You won't find right. them. Right, right. <laughs> uh, Curtis Ebsmeyer was the guy. And John's okay. James Ingram. That's awesome. Uh, are, the two, are the two guys. So yeah, that's a fun one. And actually at the time, uh, they were already tracking other spills of what they call, uh, I think, flotsam. Is how you say that? F-L-O-T-S-A-M, which I guess is a term for like indicators that are floating around, right? Uh, they were tracking 61,000 Nike running shoes that had been lost oh. overboard in 1990. Oh, shit. 61,000? Nike running shoes, yes. Wow. And they're floating around? Yep. Yeah. Um, so that was a kind of fun, but also, you know, it still sucks. Um, yeah, I mean... It's not good to have trash in the ocean, regardless. Yep. Obviously. So I, got, I got two more specific uh, scenarios here. 2004, a ship called the Med Taipei, I think, dropped okay. uh, 24 containers into the Monterey, Monterey, geez, Monterey Bay Sanctuary, which is a tightly controlled sanctuary off the coast of California. And mm-hmm. so you're not going to get away with that. So they ended up paying 3.5 uh 3.25 million dollars to uh noah which is uh the north oh boy what does noah stand for mm, yeah it doesn't remember. matter uh it's a ocean research yeah right uh so they use that money to study the impacts of these containers basically and uh so the container the one container that they focused on was 44,200 feet down and um, ended up doing all sorts of interesting things. It provided like a reef-like structure for two worms. Oh. Um, certain animals were using it as sort of like, because it was, uh, the the ground that it was on was mostly just like flat mud. And then all of a sudden a shipping container. So it wasn't like jagged rocks or anything. So the shipping okay. container was significant mm-hmm. in its surroundings. So yeah, it basically turned into this mini reef. Uh, That's which interesting. Is, which is pretty cool. And they've done that before uh, with like, they'll take old uh, warships and whatnot. Yeah. And, and take... like kind of artificially yep. start a reef. Yeah. They'll, they'll like take all the oils and stuff out and then they'll sink them. National um, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, by the way. There we go. NOAA. Um, but one of the other interesting, so the reason I, I brought this one up, I don't have too much, on this exact, you know, the, the research on this one's still ongoing, but one of the quotes from one of the guys I thought was really interesting. So because the shipping containers, or I'm sorry, ships travel along shipping lanes, mm-hmm. you would theorize, and I think you could go probably prove too, that any dropped containers are probably statistically, you know, concentrated yeah. along these shipping oh, lanes. Sure. So Depending on was, like the you drop a container in the ocean kind of how it falls is it going to go straight down probably not yeah i don't know there's a lot of depth there anyway so one guy was hypothesizing that uh these shipping containers you know if there's a long enough line of them they could almost provide a a stepping stone for invasive species to go from one coastal harbor to another Hmm. so 
you have these reefs that build up on these shipping containers where previously it was just desolate. Bare. Oh, I see. Desolate ocean. So, so now like all a, of a sudden... It's like a truck you, stop. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was really... That fun. is really interesting. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there are spans of ocean that certain life won't, you know, travel because it's just too... Too much distance in between, so I, th- I think certain certain life won't travel like. So if you just imagine in deep open ocean, right? Like yeah. a, a small fish isn't going to go out into the deep ocean, sure, because sure. it doesn't have the techniques to survive, right? Whereas if it can if it can hop from truck stop to truck stop, hmm. So you're saying once you get enough of these containers, and maybe there already are, um, basically creates a road, a highway. Kind of. That's what this guy was underneath this. I, I mean, that's a. It's an interesting theory. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I guess I'd be curious so, to see if fish actually are willing to, you know, make that migration, or even if it is possible, are they actually going to do it? Yeah, do they care to leave their their home base? You know what I mean? Probably not, unless something's pushing them out. Right. Right. Hmm. So, and then the other major thing that this article provided was, um, or this subject provided, uh, mm-hmm. there's a couple different articles I was looking at, um, was the number, the estimated number of these containers going overboard each year. So 2011, mm-hmm. they were looking at uh, t- 2008 to 2010, an average of 675 containers each year. Then in 2014, wow. looking at 2011 to 2013, mm-hmm. their estimated at, uh, estimated was 2,600. Really? So this is worldwide. Yeah. It's like the amount of containers being dumped in, into the, the amount of containers. Well, being dropped. Yeah. Dropped. Yeah. Um, wow. Now, what's the leading like, cause? Just like rough seas cause the top containers to come loose, and that's up, a big one. Down they go. <laughs> that's a big one. Uh, yeah. Another big one is if so. One of these, uh, one of the studies, the second one, I think, one reason for the big jump is the second one counted catastrophic ship sinking. So if you have a container ship full of containers and it sinks, which does happen, uh, yeah. There's video on YouTube, actually, I found. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was pretty sickening to watch. Um, of just a whole container ship going down? Just a whole a whole one, yeah. Whoa. Every single Every single container. Yeah, so that's driving your average up. That'll send you skyrocketing. Yeah. I mean, how many, I don't know how many are on a single ship, but. It looked like, I mean, I couldn't even, hundreds. I guess, hundreds at least, yeah. 500 maybe, I don't know. Uh, and so the last bit on this one, the, the particular shipping crate that they're studying in Monterey Bay uh, they believe is safe because according to the shipping manifest inside of it is radial tires. <laughs> okay. So the last one, I think this one, this one, if, if listeners have ever heard of any of these, it'll be this one. Um, and I know you have the Lego beach. Yeah. I like this one. <laughs> so much like the rest of these, uh, a shipping container fell over and busted open at some point. 1997 off the coast of Cornwall, United Kingdom. And so for the past 17, well, since then, 
um, what appears to be a slow leak of, oh, sorry, let me back up. What was in the container was 4.8 million AquaZone line Legos. AquaZone being the, the theme of the Legos. So they were, ironically, they were nautical. I love know, that. Ocean, That's ocean themed. Puts the cherry on top for the entire story. Right? So, um, so yeah, to this day, Legos are still washing up on mostly this one stretch of beach, but uh, the length, the length of it as well. Um, and it's almost turned into like a little game. This woman started a Facebook page, and there there are certain items that are more rare to find than <laughs> others. Uh, the current holy grail, as they call it, is finding either one of the octopuses, which are black. Or uh, there are two types of dragons, gray and green. <laughs> I'm looking at this little octopus right now. Yeah, and he's pretty. It's pretty awesome. I'd be pretty happy to find that. Are there any so, sharks? There's got to be sharks. Um, I have the list. There's, of there's what at was least dropped. sharks included in the AquaZone uh, theme of Legos. So, so much yeah. like the tires, we do have the exact numbers here. There Ooh. are. From the container, we know exactly. It's crazy. Oh my gosh! We know exactly what was in it. So yeah. there, there are thirteen thousand red and yellow spear guns. Thirteen thousand. There are forty-two hundred octopus octopi. Oh. Uh, Twenty-six thousand six hundred yellow life preservers. Four hundred and eighteen thousand mm-hmm. of the little diver flippers that go on the Lego guy's feet. Mm-hmm. More on those later. There are. <laughs> Forty, uh, sorry, thirty-four thousand dragons, black and green. Sorry, not gray and green, black and green. There are three hundred fifty-three thousand daisy flowers. They come in four colors. Okay. Uh, white, red, yellow, and blue. Uh, there's ninety-seven thousand scuba breathing apparatuses. <laughs> for a total oh, of four million. Uh, that was not. So that was that was just some of the breakdown. There might yeah. be sharks. Yeah, <laughs> um, I hope. So there are four, roughly uh, 4.75 million Lego pieces in the container, and it's estimated that 3.1 million of them are light enough to have floated. So there are some that are still in the container, theoretically. Or if the okay. container busted open, they're, they're just on the seafloor. Hmm. I'm um, going to have to go find a shark and test its buoyancy. Right. <laughs> um, it, I'm surprised, I guess, that... I don't know. I guess when you when you initially started the story, I was imagining assembled assembled Lego kits, but really they were shipping large bins of individual pieces. It sounds like either that it was either that or they were shipping the sets, right, which are to be built. Well, yeah, but it just sounds like the and maybe the breakdown just goes much further. But it sounds like the pieces you're describing would never be all inclusive to a set, like. Oh, I see what you mean. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, I don't know. There's no bricks. There were no, like, if you're if you're giving if there's uh, well, there are definitely diving bricks. apparatus. Then where are the people? And you know, yep, yep. I guess I don't know. I was guess if there's more comprehensive list of parts, then maybe they were the same. Yeah, I but. didn't I didn't find the full list because obviously the numbers I rattled off mm-hmm. don't add up to three million or four well, million. Also, though, I don't know how they did it in '97, but. If they were shipping kits, they were probably bagged the parts. I think they were bagging them then too. It wasn't just a cardboard box of parts, right? Right. So they, 
wouldn't have gotten out of the plastic bag. So if you're having individual pieces show up, ah, good point. Good they point. were probably individual boxes. Yeah. Of you know, and maybe the kits were to be assembled or whatever. They were going somewhere. Maybe they're going to the Lego store in New York City. I was also thinking, like, you know, is it slowly leaking out of the out of the container somehow? Like, is there an air bubble in the container and like that's keeping some in, and it takes a, a big current to come by and jostle yeah. it a little bit, and then yeah. you get a big release. Or did they all like release at once and they've just been floating around in those gyres? <laughs> right. Maybe the buoyancy is enough that they just don't kind of, and they're so small that they don't just fly to the surface. They're kind of trapped as debris. So this guy, Rob Arnold, has been, outside of the Lego thing, this particular beach has been cleaning it up for many years and <laughs> has developed a couple different um, methods of doing it. But when the Lego thing happened... He does this thing where he'll take like big amounts of sand and he'll essentially run water through the sand and and bubble up anything but sand, hmm. um, or, or more more drain the sand away really. So flippers were not showing up all that often. Okay. Neither were the daisy flowers, and so it turns out this guy started when he started doing this with the sand, taking big chunks of sand and. Mm -hmm looking for trash in it with this method, he's started finding the daisy flowers and the flippers in the sand. So like the octopus and the, the octopi and the dragons and stuff, you find yeah. them on the beach, like on the surface. Okay. But it, it appears that some of the smaller pieces are like becoming part of the beach. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're just because of their size, they're kind of getting sifted I guess down so. that's, and that's, they just that's get... my hypothesis at least. Yeah. I mean, as they get washed up and sand is getting, mixed around and whatever they just kind of are caught up in the turmoil whereas a larger piece is going to float in a little more gracefully right. probably right oh man that's crazy so yeah that's uh i love that one <laughs> good topic yeah Very good. thank you that was yeah. fun the uh <laughs> and actually i just thought of this uh props to lego uh they spent a bunch of money over the past uh, couple of years and, and for a while, they are actively searching for uh, an alternative to their plastic. So they currently make their bricks and everything, right, out of a certain ABS yeah. plastic or whatever yeah. it is. Yep. They are actively searching for something else that is not environmentally harmful. Hmm. So good on them. Yeah, and they're spending. I they're spending like a to lot see that, to do for it. Sure. There's a there's there's a news article about it years ago at this point, but I remember the number was in the billions mm -hmm. and how and how much they're spending. So, shout out to them for yeah, for hell being yeah, cool. that's great. Good to hear. All right, what do you say we uh, we ended there? It. Yeah, sounds good. That was thanks a lot of fun. Everybody. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, I'll come back, uh, hopefully come back next week with that, uh, see if I can't find that textbook thing. Yeah, about the um, the nervous system and or the spinal cord section yep. that's directly related. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, remember everybody, drive faster to avoid potholes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>